Last summer, not a year ago, but a few months ago, we began working through the book of Philippians. And we as a church are committed to the majority of our preaching to be through books of the Bible. Uh, we go verse by verse through an entire book. And, and we do this because we wish to be faithful to what we see Paul saying in Acts 20, 27, where he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And preaching through books... We cannot skip passages that are difficult or controversial. And so the whole counsel of God is, is preached that way. Uh, not just the things we think that might be appealing, uh, entertaining, or any other reason we might have for preaching it. So like I said, we began preaching through the book of Philippians last summer, and we are now up to chapter 3. We're just about done with it. Today we'll look at the last four verses in chapter 3. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians 3. Verse 17, and let's read through it to the end of the chapter. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The grass withers, the flower fades. This text we're looking at today is really three main ideas, and the first idea in verse 17 is a call for us to imitate Paul and to imitate those who walk according to the example that they've been given. Second idea is in verses 18 and 19, and this is a warning. It's a, it's a warning pointing to what life and death looks like for those who won't follow Christ, who walk a different walk, who walk as enemies of the cross, it says. And it's a warning to us not to follow in their footsteps. And then the last idea we see in this portion uh, is in verses 20, 21, is a, a reminder to us that this world we live in is, is not the nation to which we belong anymore. It's not where our citizenship. It reminds us of, of what's to come in our future because our God has made us citizens of, of his kingdom, his eternal nation. And so as we look at our text, I want you to understand just a little bit of framework of what we're seeing here. In essence, verses 18 and, and 19 are this concern that Paul has for the Philippians, for those who are part of the visible church there. And then verse 17 at the beginning and verses 20 and 21 are, are antidotes for that concern. First, to keep your eyes on those who are following Christ. And the second one is to remember that we are citizens of, a, of the kingdom of God. So let's start by looking at verse 17. It reads, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitation is an intriguing idea to me. I can remember years ago, Laura telling me this theory she had, and the theory is that you can tell freshman roommates simply by looking at what they're wearing because they always dress almost the exact same. And, and i got to say, I've been researching this for years just by watching people, and after researching this, I absolutely am a believer in this now. Over and over again, it is, it is proved true. I have probably 75% accuracy rate, uh, and that's, that's pretty high in my book. So <clears throat> if I'm honest, it seems more prevalent in, in women than in men, 
Uh, but I was reminded of this theory when a couple of guys walked by the window at Redina's the other day. They went by and they're both wearing brown sperries, colorful pants. One was wearing pink, the other one teal. Uh, looked like the exact same pair of pants. They both wore a blue button-down, untucked t-shirt, and I saw them, and all I could think was, ah, freshmen, <laughs> roommates. Uh, it did cross my mind that might be fret boys, but probably roommates, right, Chris? Anyway, imitation is, <laughs> I think I embarrassed them. Uh, imitation is, is everywhere. We see it when our, when our children are, are cute and they're pretending to be doing whatever we're doing. We, uh, we see it with less joy when our children repeat some phrase and you're thinking, where did you hear that? Right, right, that was me. It, it's not as cute in those moments. And really, the, the truth is that we as humans learn better by example than, than just about anything else. Uh, I can remember three years ago going to a high school basketball game and bringing our children with us. Uh, one of our girls at the time was three years old, and she brought her cheerleading pom-poms with her. And we noticed during the game that she was standing up, and, and she had her hands behind her back, and, you know, real, real straight posture, and she was shaking these pom-poms behind her, and, and she was staring across the gym, and she looked the part absolutely perfect. She looked just an adorable little bitty cheerleader. And I remember watching her eyes and seeing where she was looking at, and sure enough, she was staring across at, at the cheerleaders and just imitating them perfectly. And you see, imitation is how we, we learn so much without even realizing it. We learn to dance by imitation. That's good and bad. Sons learn how to shave by, by imitating the fathers. Uh, people learn to pray by imitation. You can hear it in the, in the words, and you can often figure out where they've, where they've been learning to pray even. Uh, we learn so much by imitation that Paul is not so much in this trying to convince us, hey, you should learn by imitation, or it might be a good idea to learn by imitation, but that since we do learn by imitation, that we should be careful who we imitate. And the first person that Paul encourages us to imitate is himself. That sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Prideful? I, I don't think it is. And, and, and let me try to illustrate why I, I don't see it as arrogant. We have this house we live in right now, and it was built in 1956, and these, these floors squeak when you walk on them. During the day, it's so little that we don't really notice it. But early in the morning when Laura and I are getting up and we're trying to, to sneak across the house before our children wake up, one or, or both of us is, are trying to get to the kitchen just to, to get some caffeine before anyone wakes up. And in those moments, the floor is incredibly squeaky. I don't know why. It just seems to be incredibly loud in those moments. And so we, we cross the house with this fear that each step might possibly wake a sleeping child and, and that would end the peace and quiet in the home for the, the rest of the day. So... For the first few months, we just, we searched for this path, figuring out, you know, where do you step and here and, and you're, you're jumping and all these ridiculous things. And then one morning we're getting up and, and Laura tells me, I found the way, follow me. <laughs> so I did. I watched where she placed each foot and I, and I traced her step for step following her path and the floor squeaked the entire way. It was probably louder than ever before. <laughs> And all, my, all I can think in my head is, Laura, you have not found the way. <laughs> so now, there's this sense here that Paul is saying boldly, like, like Laura did that morning, I have found the way. Follow me. And, and I imagine that, like following Laura uh, that morning, if I followed Paul, I would have heard the, the floor squeak many times. And, and I'd be wondering, uh, Paul, is this indeed the way? 
because we would have seen sin. We would have seen his failure. But we would have also seen his confession of sin, his repentance, his renewed passion for obedience in Christ. I, I think that we sometimes assume that Paul was Jesus, that he was some kind of perfection, and, and he wasn't. And this is the same man that calls himself the chief of sinners. And in Romans 7.15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. See, the floor squeaked beneath Paul's feet. But there's something more to Paul. He's also a man who, despite all of his failures, always returns to the one place where hope and forgiveness is found. He returns to the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but, but Paul's seeking to follow Jesus. And though he's not perfect, he's being sanctified. There's, there's a quality to Paul's life that is not content with a sinful life. He's not just embracing it as some messy reality. He's fighting to kill the sin in his life. And not only Paul in this church, but, but many others as well. That's, that's what we see in verse 17 if you look at it. It says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Walking is action. It's a way of life. It's thoughts. It's behavior. It's the content that makes up our lives. In Deuteronomy 5.33, shortly after the Ten Commandments are listed, uh, the people of God are told, you shall walk in the way of the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Walking is a statement of how we live. And Paul's saying, follow the example of those who walk according to the word of God. And he lists himself, and he lists others. Not as an arrogant statement of arrival, but a statement of common destination. He's saying, I'm pursuing Jesus. That's the trajectory of my life. That's where I'm going. That's where you need to be going. So come with me, follow me. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4.16. There he writes, I urge you, be imitators of me. So, Brothers and sisters, look for examples to follow in your life. People who are following Christ. And this is going to look different at different stages in your life. When I was a new believer, 17 years old, and I thought, really I thought Christians were a bunch of stuffy people who had no fun. Way too serious. And I wondered, can I, can I make jokes and still follow Jesus? Because I hadn't grown up in the church. I hadn't met a lot of people that way. And I met this guy named Mike Zorro, and he was 22, and he was crazy. Not sinful, but crazy, weird, funny, jumped on things. And he loved Jesus, and it was great, because he also loved the Word of God, and he was a great example in so many ways, and I needed that example to follow at that point in my life. And later in my life, though, when I, when I needed a bigger vision of, of who God is, of his sovereignty and his power and his mighty work of salvation and his love uh, for his people, I, I discovered John Piper through his, his preaching, through his books, and his passion for following Jesus encouraged me greatly. And then later, I remember when Laura was pregnant with Beckham, our first child, we, we realized we need an example of, of godly parenting. And so we began to look around our church, and we were asking ourselves, who has, who has children who are joyful, uh, who are obedient, who, who love God, who are discipled well, who, who are peaceful? And we found this couple that we didn't know real well. Their, their name was Jay and Amber Porterfield, and they live in Dallas, and it's been years since we've talked to them now, but... We started to ask him, what, what do you do? What do you read? Like, what, what should we do? 
what does discipleship of our children look like? And we followed their example of, of, of godly parenting, and they were such a blessing to us to know here are believers that are ahead of us and what we're trying to do, and to be able to follow their example in that way. In our life, many people have served as examples for us to follow uh, because they were following Jesus Christ. Uh, many people in this room today, both older and younger than us, continue to serve as examples to us, not because they're perfect, uh, but because they're following Jesus. And so look around you. Uh, look for examples of those people that are following Christ well and learn from them. Look to others, though, can get really uncomfortable. For instance, uh, if I say this, I, I think you should follow Travis as an example in, in following Jesus. Uh, many of you are thinking, yeah, that makes sense. I, I can learn a lot by following his example. But how do you think Travis is feeling right now? I didn't tell him I was going to say this. It's a little awkward. Uh, a little strange as you, you think people are looking around at me, wondering, you know, evaluating. Is he a good idea to follow? Sorry to throw you under the bus like that. I'm not sorry. But like Paul, Travis isn't perfect. Uh, but he views Scripture as authoritative in his life. Uh, he's sub submissive to the men who hold him accountable in our denomination. Uh, he's quick to confess his sin. Uh, he's being sanctified, growing in grace, and he and many others in this room are, are worthy of imitation in the sense that Paul means it here. And it's a scary thing to be an example for others in any situation. I read recently in 1 Peter 5.3 uh, the other day that the elders are encouraged to not be domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And that's, that's an uncomfortable place to be. Uh, you kind of see that and you think, well, hopefully no one in the congregation will ever read that and hold me to that. <laughs> because it's just not a comfortable place to be. But that's what God has for elders, as we see in First Peter. And according to our text today, that's what God has for many men and women in the church today. Uh, and so how does it feel today for you to say to someone, follow my example, follow me? And I ask you that because you need to get okay with that. Because this is discipleship. It's a close, intimate relationship, not some massive program where you go through 15 steps and suddenly you're a disciple. Uh, this was a discipleship method, though. This was Paul's discipleship method. And do you really believe that we have a better discipleship method than Paul? Uh, D.A. Carson says, If you haven't said to someone, follow me, do what I do, then you haven't understood the New Testament call to make disciples. Parents, you are leading your children as examples whether you want to or not. You don't decide it one way or another, which doesn't mean you can't make mistakes. It doesn't mean you can't sin. It means you need to show them how to respond to sin in your life. You show them how to ask for forgiveness from others and, and from God. You show them how to make decisions based on the authority of Scripture. You show them how to pursue obedience to Christ. You show them what it means to worship God and how to laugh at humor and how to play. Yeah, even those things. And you show them how to care and serve others. The last thing I'll say about this portion, and I think it's a good way to lead into the next portion, is this guy named Bruce Wesley was once talking to a group of us, and he said, be careful how you imitate because it's a good way to learn, but a terrible way to live. What he means by that is that imitation is a good way to learn how to follow Jesus. However, at some point, you must actually follow Jesus yourself. Uh, the faith of your friends or your parents or your pastor is a great example to follow, but it must 
be your own God-given faith for it to be genuine. In verses 18 and 19, we see what Paul's concern for them is. Uh, Look at the text with me. Let's read it again. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. The people Paul's talking about here aren't necessarily those people who openly hate God. Sometimes we think there is a neutrality. There isn't. In Scripture, we learn that we are either children of God or we are enemies of God. Paul is shaken up by this because most likely these are people who have been in the visible church. These are people that he thought were children of God, seemingly brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's telling us their walk, their life, is showing them to be enemies of the cross and not children of God. Colossians 3 also uses this term, walk, in reference to behavior uh, and values. Colossians 3, 5 through 7 reads, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. It goes on from there to say that we, we must stop these old ways of living. In our text today, Paul gives four descriptions of these people who are walking as enemies of, of the cross. The first is God's word says in verse 18 that their end is destruction. We see this same idea of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which reads, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And again, in Matthew 7.13, Jesus is speaking, and he uses the same Greek term for destruction. When he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. I know when Christians speak about hell, it's offensive. But the plain and simple truth is the destruction that Paul is warning us against here, the destruction that comes from walking as enemies of the cross, is hell. That's where the path ends. Now, the second description of those who are walking as enemies of the cross is in verse 19. It explains their God is their belly. This means their own desires, this worldly pleasure, what they want in the moment, that that they bow down to those desires. Think of of Jacob and Esau. If you're familiar with the story, you remember Esau has something truly valuable in his birthright. He has an an inheritance as the firstborn son, but but he comes home from hunting one evening and and he's hungry. And and in that moment, he, he trades something of amazing value for a bowl of lentil stew. Do you even know what lentil stew is? There's no meat in it. It's it's worse than pea soup. But in that moment, he trades something of amazing value for that because his belly was his God. He, He served his belly in that moment. And really, Esau's life continues in that trajectory. God at the time had said to them, Do not take wives from among the Canaanites. What do you think Esau does? His God is his belly. And he takes two wives, both of them Canaanites. When we follow the path of sinful immediate gratification rather than the path of of God revealed in his word, we show that our belly is our God. The third description in our 
our text today says the glory and the shame. See, there's a big difference between someone who sins and repents and, and someone who is in rebellion against God and refuses to acknowledge their sin as sin or is even prideful in their sin. But I want you to understand something about this. Christ's church, Christ's church in every generation, in every nation, is full of people who have messed up in huge ways. Not just failures, but fiascos. F- failures of mythic proportions. Things so bad, they seem unforgivable. Think of, of King David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, she's the wife of, of one of his soldiers, and he's embarrassed by this, so he tries to cover it up, and in doing so, he sends her husband to the front lines where he is killed during war. This wasn't just a messy situation. Uh, he committed the sins of, of coveting, uh, adultery, murder. Uh, this is moral failure of epic proportions. And then it doesn't happen immediately, but eventually God through the prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin. And, and we get to hear his response in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Like his confession. And Nathan said to David, right after that, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. See, there are consequences that continue because of his sin. But don't miss the significance of this statement. The Lord has put away your sin. He's forgiven. David writes about this, this sin and this forgiveness as, that he receives from God in Psalm 51. And there in verse 17, he writes this, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, I, I show you this because as Paul describes these <coughs> pretenders uh, in this section, the fact that they have sinned really, really isn't the issue. This is not some ultra-fundamentalist expectation of perfection. It's a, a question of how do the children of God respond to sin in their life? Do they glory in it? Do they treat it like it's no big deal? Or do they feel the weight of it? The hope and the prayer is always that they come to God with contrite hearts and repentance, receiving the grace offered to them in the gospel. Grace is freely given. But we can never divorce grace from repentance. Both are God-given gifts for His true children. And we're never beyond the grace of God. Our sin is often shameful, often embarrassing, but it's not permanent. Whatever sin is in your past, if repented of, is just that, in your past. I mean, do you understand that, Christian? I say that because a lot of us want to hold on to past sins, but if you're a child of God, stop carrying the sin that Jesus has already nailed to the cross. Repent and, and rest in what Jesus has accomplished for you. The fourth and final description of those walking as enemies of the cross is that they walk with their minds set on earthly things. Scripture speaks in, in terms of uh, what's pleasing to God and, and what's against God. Things above, our heavenly things, are those things which honor God. Worldly things or earthly things, fleshly things are, are terms in Scripture uh, of what is sin against God. Colossians 3.2 encourages us to, to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3 even gives a partial list of what is earthly and, and, and what things are above. We're not going to get into that, but if you want to understand it better, go read Colossians 3 this week. And so, some things we should not let our minds dwell on. 
things clearly forbidden in Scripture, lust and greed and coveting and so many other things. But also understand this statement is about not setting our mind on earthly things does not forbid you from being a fan of football. Uh, It doesn't forbid you from liking pretty clothing or shopping or listening to secular music or any number of enjoyments that are not directly Christian. Uh, Those things can be good gifts of God for his children. So long as they stay in the place of, of good gifts and, and they do not rise to a position of God in our life. So don't let your minds be consumed or, or overtaken with temporal things to the neglect of what's truly eternal. And that's one of the important things about being in the Word of God on a regular basis. Uh, it's also about us coming together each week. Uh, it, it's important because it helps recalibrate our minds in some regard. Our, our, our whole liturgy, as Travis was mentioning earlier, is, is designed for renewal. Uh, to set our mind again on the things above, to, to help us focus back where our mind should be. And, and that's why it's a sad thing to neglect worship. And so we have those, those four descriptions of those who walk as enemies of God here. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And, and I barely mentioned it before, but did you notice that Paul speaks of these people with, with tears? They aren't strangers. They're people who have they've ministered to. People they've hoped and believed were following Christ. People whom they love and and who are breaking Paul's heart. That's that's what's bringing tears. So look around this room. This is your covenant family. Uh, There's more that aren't here today. Uh, Let us never cease to pray for each other, to, to build each other up, to encourage each other, to walk after Christ, um, not to walk as enemies of the cross. And this last portion is about our citizenship. Verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Uh, and then there's this description of our Savior who we're waiting for. As the text continues, The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, Because our citizenship is in heaven, we don't chase the same dreams or adopt the same values of the world around us. The church is kind of like an embassy in the world. Uh, We represent our our homeland, the kingdom of God. Uh, For better or or worse, we represent our king, Jesus. And as Christians, we tend to be ashamed of our Christian culture. Some of that's legit, at least to the degree that Christian culture fails to match up to what scripture is. But we belong to another culture, another kingdom. Uh, So in that sense, really, we should have a different culture, a different vocabulary, a different way of showing hospitality, of of values, a a different ethic. You know, purity should never be a point of pride in us, but it also shouldn't be something we're ashamed of. Uh, That's what God's called you to. And Paul in this text reminds us that we are away from home in this world. It's a very strange thing to think about, but that's what he's saying. And so it makes sense that we're going to feel out of place sometimes. You're going to feel uncomfortable, like you're a weirdo. You are, in a lot of ways. Hebrews 13, 14 reminds us of this, saying, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Also, Ephesians 2, 19-22 speaks of our true citizenship. It reads, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. 
San Francisco has a, an area of town called, called Chinatown. Uh, it's made up of people who are from China and, and are living in a community away from their homeland. I know this sounds completely cheesy, I confess it, but the church has something similar, something like Jesus Town. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> the church is made up of people who are citizens of heaven and are living in a community away from their homeland. Let me close with this. Our culture often values leadership not following. Leadership is good, following is not in our culture. In fact, we teach methods of leadership with absolutely no concern where these people are going to take people. We'll just show you how to lead and you go. No idea where you're going. Uh, that's not good. Uh, let me encourage you to, to focus more in your life uh, on what it means to be a good follower of Christ. Uh, we lack people who are following well. We have plenty of leaders. And let me encourage you, like Paul, to follow those who are following Jesus, to walk the path that leads to Christ, because all other paths lead to destruction.